I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. I'm Lydia Lamelli. And we love to watch. We Love to Watch has witnessed the only time anyone has wanted to go to Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Doing good. We're, uh, yeah, we're getting ready to watch a movie about um, the government's attempt to contain a pandemic. So What? That's not, crazy. Uh, we promise. Right off the bat, we promise this is not done. We've done, <laughs> we have a whole summer of movies that weirdly tie into. Uh, whole summer of, yeah. <laughs> that weirdly end up tying into what's going on outside. But uh, we promise that this was just us uh, liking, having good memories of this movie and wanting to cover it. We're not, Here, we're not trying here's to the problem, it. Peter. Yes. It was kind of like when we did after, like in February of 2017, we did uh, Future Sport Month. And what is all, what do all future sport movies have in common, like Death Race 2000, is they have a world where, like, there's some sort of game show where people don't care about the lives of human beings. And, and hey, what political system is known very, very, very much for not caring about the lives of human beings? Fascists. Um, and then, so now we have future fascists up, uh, hosting game shows. And it was like, man, it's like all these movies are like Donald Trump. But actually, we're just talking about uh, fascism. And that reminds a lot of people of Donald Trump. Here, Peter, what our problem is, and this happened in Siege Month 2, is that we like horror movies. And a lot of horror movies are about uh, needing to stay inside your house or the fear of infection or something like that. And so what we've just accidentally done by um, the type of movies that we've covered this show is uh, uh, related to the real world nightmare that we're all living through on a daily basis. Anyway, uh, if you don't know who we are, where we love to watch, we're a movie podcast. We pick a theme. We do movies over the course of that month around that theme. And if you remember, we compare and contrast them. And this month is actually a double month. We decided to spend the summer, July and August, doing horror remakes, or as we've called them, screamakes. And it is our third week. And we kind of are starting this eight-week run with a mini trilogy of uh, Romero remakes. So we did... Uh, 1990s uh, Night of the Living Dead to kick off. Some more than others did that episode. And then we did uh, Dawn of the Dead, the Zack Snyder 2004 remake. And now we're doing, I think, the uh, one that people forget more. I guess maybe the 1990 Night of the Living Dead is also not remembered all that well. But uh, this really, this movie came at the tail end, I think, of the of kind of the um, the era of horror movies that was kicked off by last week's movie, Zack, Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead, where it was, let's remake all of these uh, classic horror movies. And so you had uh, My Bloody Valentine and Texas Chainsaw Massacres and Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street. And, you know, that kind of runs from essentially like 2005 too. to two. Yeah, Halloween. I mean, that basically ran. They remade all of them. From like 2005 to 2009, and it was about 2010 when this movie comes out that they're like kind of really reaching into the bottom of the bag. Not in terms of quality, I want to underline, but just in terms of how well known the property 
uh, was. And then eventually that kind of fizzled out before we got some really cool stuff like um, uh, shit. What was that horror movie we did? for the camp horror movie that we both love the burning <laughs> before we started getting yes. like the burning remakes and stuff. But, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so we, we are talking about 2010s the crazy directed by uh, uh, a director who earned everything on his own through hard work and ingenuity. Brett Bre- Eisner. Uh, we'll talk maybe a little bit about that. I guess this is his best movie. Um, he's Michael Eisner's son. The oh gosh. <laughs> is he really? Um, he really yeah, is, yeah, and oh, uh, wow. he's gotten a lot of crit- He's gotten a lot of criticism for like, because uh, his first uh, movie was I, I don't know the Dirk Clive Clusler's books about some some guy is very popular. I don't know it. Uh, maybe I want to say like Dirk Diggler, but uh, that seems like Boogie Nights. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it was the movie Sahara that was supposed to be this big budget. A movie, I think, for uh, Touchstone or one of the Disney imprints. And Michael Eisner gave it to uh, Breck Eisner. And both the author of those books and the fact that the the movie was a huge disaster, uh, he got a lot of criticism for being like, here, kid, direct this $80 million uh, uh, adaptation. Um, but... Uh, and it's and it ends up being like an over the plate movie that doesn't make it, it, it underperforms, but it's not a complete bomb. And it, up until that point, he had just done a few episodes of TV and a TV movie. Like essentially, uh, it, 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 he was in a sense uh, the Colin Trevorrow of his day, except for imagine, you know. Um, just being given a property that no one cares about. So people forget about you, whereas Colin Trevorrow became a name that nerds hate because he got handed Jurassic Yeah, and he, I mean, he does, for his big budget stuff, he did, I mean, he went to film school. He had a couple of, you know, smaller films. But, like, he he does three movies, essentially. Sahara, The Crazies, and The Last Witch Hunter. And then he also, like, executive produced uh, A Sound of Thunder, which is such a wonderful uh, Ray Bradbury short story and, like, one of the worst movies I've ever seen. But, yeah, it it is truly, like, one of the forgotten bad, bad movies. Like, you need to wipe Troll 2 and all those other movies off your your worst movies of all time list until you've seen A Sound of Thunder. Oh, wow. But here to talk with us about about the crazies uh, on our second time on the show, Lydia... Thank you for coming back on We Love to Watch. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm excited to come back. It's been so long since the last one, so I'm ready. Was it, sorry, was it last October or was it the October I know, it's, it seems like a long time to me. <laughs> but Okay, because I, like, I thought it was last October, but also this whole thing has made my concept of time yeah, it's just, just it's, completely, like, I just have, it's like, I remember the last three months and then everything else seems like, like, the time before and the long, long ago. And I was like, Lydia, it, was, it wasn't that long ago, but it's like, I was living in a different house, and yeah, it feels like forever ago at, at this point in time, so yeah. <laughs> but anyways, yeah, Lydia, if uh, if people didn't hear your last episode, which they should have, uh, and ha- and don't know who you are, why don't you introduce yourself a little to our audience before we get into this more? Well, my name is Lydia Lamelli, and I did a pet, a pet cemetery podcast with you guys back in October, yeah. and I love horror movies. Um, I love to do podcasts i like to you know watch trashy move you know horror movies not other trashy movies you know like (laughs) like horror trashy movies and uh, spent my whole life being a really big fan of those movies and um really getting into like the art of film whereas before you know was 
as a kid, I didn't really appreciate that as much as I do now. So it's a whole different world now to watch um, films for art and not just, you know, mix them in with the trash. And I, I enjoy um, narrating ebooks. I'm, you know, that's my career that I'm trying to get into. And I, awesome. I like socializing and talking about movies. And I also like reading and doing other things, but that's my main obsession. So thank you for having me again. <laughs> Of course, yeah, we'd love to have you on uh, for Pet Cemetery. That was such a fun episode, and yeah, we're excited to get you back to talk about more horror movies. What ends up happening on our show from like how we do our months is that we hit horror so hard in October um, that we tend to like almost take this natural break. I think a little bit from it. So we've had a lot of months uh, since then that are like not horror. They're Hallmark Christmas movies and Muppet movies and documentaries and then um yeah it's about this time of the year where we get a little more like oh yeah horror movies <laughs> let's do a bunch of months about uh about scary people and uh sexy timothy oliphants so, uh, stupid, so sexy yeah timothy stupid sexy to- he's so uh, not sexy for- to me <laughs> well you know he's, what well, is he is he really a sex symbol oh really is he because i think I'm so yeah and i'm naive so you have to be careful because i i will just believe everything you say i mean i did you watch so the reason that i would say uh a very very uh enthusiastic affirmative to that is because of watching uh justified okay which he is very very both good and cool and sexy in oh, wow. throughout it so um, so that has like out. leached into everything else I've seen. I mean, Justified's a great show. Cannot recommend it enough. Peter and I have talked about it quite a bit. It's gotten edited out because we have a debate about the, the ending episode. But we're not going to get into that here again, especially with yeah. a guest. Uh, but uh, combined it, with the fact that like in interviews and in this like just okay but very charming Netflix show, Santa Clarita Diet that he was in, um, like super charming, but it's just an okay show. Um, yeah, I've seen him on so that show, fun. but before this, I've only seen him, um, like, Scream 3 and um, this movie called The Perfect Getaway. So, oh, yeah. Perfect Getaway is a great movie. Yeah. It's kind of one of those, I don't know if a lot of people know about it, but there's just something about it that I like his performance in it, but I never see him as being, like, this sex symbol. So I might have to, you know, check this show out and see, because I have a very limited, you know, knowledge of what his range is, you know? I would say Justified is, is you know, in my top five shows of the past decade. Um, wow. We talk, about it on the sh- we talk about it on the show a lot because it's so fucking good. Um, but Timothy Oliphant is obviously, like, like Aaron said, very sexy in that. But in stuff like Santa Clarita Diet and interviews and, like, uh, sort of just, like, videos of him hanging out, like, he's just kind of this, like, he's growing into, like, a sort of sexy dad mode that's also working for me really well. Um, so it, it, it is a little bit like a, a fine wine. So um, there's a movie he was in called um, Girl Next Door, um, which actually started Aaron and I are both watching uh, Happy Endings right now. Happy Endings. Uh, him yeah. for the fourth time or whatever, me for the first time. Um, uh, and uh, one of the stars in it is in um, Girl Next Door. And I remembered Timothy Oliphant was for a little bit. He's the bad Scream guy. Two yeah. period and during the Girl Next Door period and a couple other movies, he was sort of the scummy bad guy. 
Uh, and then everyone, yeah. kind of, and then I think he got, a, he's one of those guys that probably hit like the 30 to 35 and then he like got a little bit of uh, dad energy and then, <laughs> and then uh, dad turned into daddy and then, you know, uh, my libido followed. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I didn't think he was like hot as a 25 year old, but like as a 35 or 45 year old, like absolutely. Yeah, yeah I think happens. the dad energy is right because you know who he reminds me of just from like uh, that kind of like person who I would have kind of rolled my eyes at people saying that they were sexy or something like that. But now has been like, oh, yeah, like this is this is a way better like age and look for them is uh, Justin Thoreau. So like, yes, the first yes. time I saw Timothy Oliphant is was in Go where he was the scummy like excess drug dealer who had the gun and kept them kidnapped in their in their room and like he was supposed to be like danger sexy with big spiked a weird haircut and stuff like that he's funny in that moment but i never would have walked away with like uh sexy energy from that um and same thing with justin thoreau in maholland drive right like he's supposed to be the hotshot young sexy director but like he's good in that role but compare those two with like justified and leftovers those two and it's like oh yeah they i feel like they were trying to be forced into being sex symbols um in their 20s by like give being given these roles or whatever else and then actually grew into dad sex symbols i guess peter you put it perfectly yeah daddy in in their 30s and 40s well, it happens because I've seen so many actors, like, when they're young like that, like, they just, I don't know, they don't have that that charm that they grow into, like you said. And when they, for some reason, they they just, their peak comes later in life, like, when they're 40. And it's yeah. like, oh, where have you been all this time? And they've been around <laughs> yeah. forever. Like, Robert Downey Jr., like, that's, you know, he's always the silly guy. And then he, you know, when he came back from all his issues that he had and he became Iron Man, is like, wow, you know, he's yeah. really, he, he, I can see him as being sex sexier now and he was he always had like chubby cheeks in this gap and and yeah. he, he was he was a comedian yeah do we want to talk about the original crazies right now do we want to talk about well let's how- yeah let's talk about a little bit of our experience so I, uh lydia i believe this was your first time watching it but part of the reason that peter and i wanted to do it is that i think we both saw it about the time it came out and i peter i had never seen the original crazies that actually just came like two or three years ago for spooktober but as we mentioned, it was at the tail end of all those remakes, and I was kind of, like, ignoring most of them. And then every once in a while, like, in the AV Club comments or stuff like that, there'd be one that got kind of the, actually, this one's pretty good. You should check it out. Like, not great, not a masterpiece, but definitely a pretty good horror movie. Because as we mentioned, um, you know, like, 2000 to 2010 especially was kind of some... Not that there's not good horror movies throughout it, but the overall trends in horror produced a lot of stinkers. <laughs> like the two trends were like were like torture porn remakes or uh, PG thirteen ghost stories, and there's a lot in that milieu that I really like. But so much of it was like, oh, another horror uh, gory remake of something like uh, without the scares, like pass. And so yeah. that's why and I so ended up watching stuff this. Got buried in that in that right, like oh yeah, agreed. Or like recognized for a, a millisecond and then forgotten about, which I'd say this movie falls into. Yeah, like it kind of got that. Oh, they're remaking the crazies, ho hum. And this movie did poor at the box office. Like 
I mean, it opened in third, and number two was Cop Out, the forgotten Kevin Smith. Oh, God. <laughs> also, one of the most brutally bad movies. It's, yeah, one of the I mean, and I think Cop Out was in its second week. So when you open and in third behind a second week of Cop Out, like, it, the movie was not successful. But then it became one of those things that, like, again, comes out on DVD at the time. You start hearing reviews, and you're like, oh, I should check this out. Uh, and it was also on Netflix uh, streaming because they had that deal with Stars, and uh, the Stars had like a production company that produced this, so it made it easy to watch too, which is how I ended up watching it originally. And I remember really liking it, like not again. I I think I gave it like you know three and a half stars, like a lot of fun, some very scary moments, um, but it just is like an effective movie about like. People becoming not zombies, but like murderers, killers. But it, it very much is from the perspective of these people that are in the small town. The military come. There's like they talk to a military person, as we'll discuss, for five sentences. Um, you never really find out what's going. And most of the like things about what the military or the government is doing to, to cover up their secret or keep the virus contained you're finding out in the way that these characters are finding out why by death and murder. And then even um, even at the end, when they think they're safe, like you're getting information from um, a satellite that's finding them and then giving information. So which seemed very much Romero, right? Like in Night of the Living Dead, you don't know what's going on. You're trapped with these characters in the house. You know, this comes out five years after Night of the Living Dead, his his movie. And so I was expecting, like, this makes total sense that this was a Romero movie. This remake is probably pretty faithful. And it really was surprising when I watched The Crazies a couple years ago, Peter. And, like, a lot of The Crazies is, like, within 20 minutes, like, hello, we're the government. We're here to solve all, kill all you or solve the problems. And, like... Not the entire movie, but so much of it is from the perspective of the doctors and the military people who are, like, fighting to decide how they should handle this and then, like, gaining more power and leverage. And I think ultimately the crazies, the Romero version is a better movie. But this, like, this this 2010 version seemed like it was probably a update, but pretty much a beat-to-beat perspective uh uh, same perspective of the Romero movie and it was really surprising that it was actually the Romero movie that like had a lot more exposition and had a lot more um, uh, le- had a lot less claustrophobia at least when it came to like who the power players in the world were yeah this is a this is one of the things that I really like about this movie is it has a sort of sense of reservation and a reservation in detail and it's very much focused on a small huddle of characters and they um it's not intending to be this sort of a global outsized panic um the crazies is an interesting corollary with like the dead movies because it's from the dawn of the dead era um and it has a similar sort of energy and photography that sort of uh, controlled chaos. The camera can go anywhere, and the and uh, this sort of um, punk vibrancy. Uh, it's similar in in Martin as well. There's action yeah. sequences in Martin where you're just like, "Holy shit!" Romero knew how to shoot a shootout. Like, yeah. um, and uh, but then by the time he got to Day of the Dead and Creepshow, he gathered more of a sense of control. 
uh, I like that this is a movie that says, okay, what what was the crazies about and how do we make it uh, quote unquote scarier? The crazies can all can ultimately be about, you know, uh, gover- the original film can be uh, more relevant to our times maybe because it's about uh, government failure and the inadequacies of bureau- bureaucracy and how uh, these, these, uh, these systems of um, o- opaqueness these opaque sort of uh, intelligence systems uh, actually undermine each other. And it's this sort of like even the government people are yelling at each other because they each person knows, you know, one person knows lines A through C and one person knows lines C through E. And so they're like not connecting. <laughs> um, this movie is like nobody knows shit. They don't know anything until the <laughs> yeah. end. And then right when uh, right when you're about to learn more about Trixie, um a guy gets shot in the head like the movie actively seeks to deny you any sort of top level information you only know information within the seconds and in that sense it's a more successful horror movie um but i do I, i am a fan of the original which i you know i can get into in a little bit yeah and and lydia you you mentioned you had not seen the original or planning to seek it out but um i don't know how much research you did before this but i'm sure you've um seen some of the the early Romero movies. How did that track to you knowing that you were going into a kind of a Romero remake? Well, he's, you know, somebody who's very well known, obviously, as a master of horror. And, you know, so it's kind of like when I go into remakes, I kind of have this expectation of, Mm-hmm. You know, this is this has got to be good because it's a remake. But when when a movie doesn't follow exactly, it's like, well, is it is it better that they're just doing their own take on it, or you know, do I expect this to be exactly the same? And so I, you know, I I I think I like the fact that it's it, they kind of took the idea and made it made it their own instead of trying to just remake. Um, like I like oh, you guys said you guys did um, Night of the Living Dead and um, the remake, right? Is that what you guys had done in the past? We did. Well, yeah, we did both. Uh, yeah, we did the Night of the Living Dead remake from 1990 and then the Zack Snyder Dawn of the Dead remake from 2000. Oh, okay, because that one I particularly liked that they pretty much, it, except for the, the female character having, you know, more power and, you know, as she gets into the movie, I, I do like that it was pretty much the same. Like there was, yeah. there wasn't too much of a change in it, and I did like that. So it's kind of like you don't, you don't know, you know how you're going to like a movie, and you just try not to have expectations. And but when when somebody who has made a movie so, that's so great as like Night of the Living Dead, you you have certain expectations. You know, kind of. I don't want to bring his name up, but we have to. Like when Shyamalan made, you know, The Sixth Sense, it's like you have this expectation moving forward that all these movies are going to be great. So we'll see, but you know we could talk about it. It won't spoil me. I will still watch the movie if you want to talk about it. So, <laughs> and we kind of came to that. That it is funny that we started like with two movies that take very different approaches to remakes, and that was kind of our thesis for this. Like Night of the Living Dead is very close, like you said, Lydia, with 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 the exception of like uh, more female empowerment to the um, Barbara character, and then Dawn of the Dead is like Maul. Zombies, apocalypse. We done. could have done like Dawn of the Dead for our siege month, basically. Yeah. Like, it's essentially zombies surround them all, and they have to figure out how to get the fuck out of it. This is definitely taking the, the Dawn approach, where it's like, um, it was it was surprising to me, because um, this felt like this would be the movie that Romero would make based on it, but it is that. It's, it's um, okay, got it. Uh, virus infects the town, government tries to contain it. 
that's our that's the parts we're going to take from this and then we're going to yeah make a different not just a different movie in a different era um but a movie from a uh different perspective i think in general especially when you're talking about classics I think that is my preferred mode, but we're going to keep getting into it through the month and that like take what you need, but make something original. And I think the other areas, as long as we're talking about remakes, which we are going to talk about for the next, you know, six weeks. And we're talking about this kind of like crazies remake um, that kind of came at the end of this like horror remake era it seems like instead what most as i'm thinking about it what most of these kind of 2005 to 2010 era remakes of 70s and 80s horror movies did was instead of taking the the dawn of the dead or the crazies idea which is take what you need make your own movie instead they're like we're going to remake it a little more beat to beat we're going to add a backstory. We're going to explain all the things that you didn't know. So you end up with, you know, the Halloween movie where it's like we're going to spend a lot of time getting to know how Michael became Michael. And yeah, you're literally half the ni- movie is, is origin story. And then the other half is a very uh, fast uh, kind of bad remake of uh, of Halloween. Yeah. yeah. And then you're going to do and then you have like. Uh, Can I put Man an asterisk right three. there? Uh, this is probably, uh, we didn't fit this into our summer. Um, the parts of the Rob Zombie Halloween I like are the origin story because it's, yeah, it's I agree. It at least is something new. Whereas like the second half, I was like, wait, why do we have to watch you do a bad version of the original Halloween? One of the greatest films of all time. Yeah. I think that's on point because like, I agree. I agree with you a hundred percent. Like that. That taking that, trying to make the new movie out of the concept is where he should have kept going. It was when he was like, well, now I'm going to do that and then I'm going to do the remake and it's going to be great. Nightmare on Elm Street, the same thing. Nightmare on Elm Street is one of the few movies I turned – the remake is one of the few movies I've ever turned off and stopped watching because I fucking hated it so much. (laughs) But that's a movie that's like, okay, we're going to do it, a remake, but here's our changes. No comedy or even attempts at comedy. It's all going to be brutal and dark and sad. And we're really going to lean into the fact that he was a child molester. And it was, uh, it's again, like those things that are hinted at to make, to give Freddy Krueger in the original some, some weight and some fear about what this person is. They, they decide to like take that part and expand it. And I think that's the mistake that remakes and, and specifically horror remakes can make, which is, well, we got to add something new. Let's explain more things, which is usually bad for most things. I mean, the Star Wars prequels were great. Like, we don't need to know that how Darth Vader became Darth Vader. Uh, and if anything, it, it's detracting because Darth Vader. No one was curious. Everyone just thought he was cool. But in horror, it can be really a wrong direction because the the scariest horror movies are the shit that is like the unknowable stuff. That's what scares people is not understanding, not knowing what's around that corner, not under being able to gas to 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 grasp the complexity of something and then getting little hints in it and realizing how horrifying the truth is. So the fact that so many of these horror remakes from this era were like well, we're going to really explain stuff, but then basically give you a worse remake of the movie you love with such a terrible direction. And this is the I think this is the way to go. Not that they made better movies, but at least they made movies that 
it it's not like an academic watch for me. It's not like, well, it's interesting to see how they changed it. Like I get different things out of 2004's Donna the Dead than I get from 1978's because they're just they're just completely different movies with some similarities. Same for this movie. I think sometimes people it's it's weird. Like sometimes you want to just have fun and be scared, but then the, I was listening to a filmmaker's um video about how I'll get off track for one second with um he was talking about signs and how influential that movie was to him and he was talking about yeah. how much he appreciates when a filmmaker doesn't spoon feed you all the information and that there's things that are left unsaid because you know it's like an appreciation for that the audience is intelligent enough to kind of see these little these little um hints or or things that you know that are not shown that makes it scarier yeah um and i think that's exactly right and so the fact that they that a lot of these horror remakes went the went the the Star Wars Episode One route of like let's see let's see Nightmare on Elm Street as a baby when he was a sad baby and then he hurt <laughs> other babies like <laughs> no that doesn't make it scarier like that that makes it less scary the the scary part about Nightmare on Elm Street is that if you fall asleep he's gonna murder you while you're sleeping the thing everyone does it's it, yeah the scary. It, that's the scary part. So, uh, and that's something that more explanation doesn't help. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like adding um, adding problematic details to it. Also, is a strange choice considering that Freddy had he he is the definition of a fun slasher. Like he's the guy who like people like became like a guy you could uh pay whatever it was 50 cents a minute to call up a line and have yeah, freddy insult you and threatens you right like freddy became a cartoon character at a certain point even within his own movies so the idea of like being like you know what we need to make freddy uh scary again what do we do well he molests children. Yes, exactly. What what we need to do is make him yeah. a laugh at that audience. <laughs> yeah, we need to make him a sort of a, a sort of everyday evil that you run into into your average and you don't have fun with at all. Like yeah, that's not fun. You've, we've decided murder is fun. We have not decided sex crimes are fun. Okay, we're. I hope we never go down that road. I hope we just keep it as murder as fun, sex crimes or not, okay? And movies, most genre movies will collapse if we ever challenge those two assumptions. I think we, we're we ready to talk about Breck Eisner's 2010 movie, The Crazies. You guys ready? Let's do it. Yeah. Let's do it. Again, don't know where, don't know when, but I know we'll meet again some sunny day. Keep smiling through, just like you always do, till the blue skies drive. The dark clouds far away And will you please say hello Can you give us some alternate tag? Uh, the Crazies uh, Feels like right now I could watch a movie called The Sainsies 
Yeah, yeah. Do you think that would have made a good tagline for the 2010 movie, The Crazies? Uh, yeah, I, I want like uh, I think more taglines should be written by uh, milk toast political commenters. Yeah, do you think they should all be in political cartoon form? The Crazies. Um, uh, they're making a movie about Congress. I want to keep going back to the Sainsies concept, where it's like, hey, a virus has been released. Great, we'll stay in our house. Make sure we're. We're safe. We're keeping. Okay, yeah. Till till the threats passed. Yep. I mean, we're sainsies, so yep. we're gonna go. We're gonna go in the house, and everyone else should do that. And the military is like, "Good job. Here's food." <laughs> uh, Extremely. And then the the popular rap song of the time would be uh, "Sane in the Membrane." Yeah. Went so sane. Bought some grain. <laughs> it's a, yeah. Well, I mean, this this does take place in Iowa. Ogden Marsh Township specifically, uh, we are introduced to a uh, sheriff, a small town sheriff of Ogden Marsh, population 1200, uh, named Sheriff Dutton. Uh, sheriff Dutton is, uh, it seems like sort of a low stake sheriff situation. He, 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 uh, he, he doesn't seem like a opi- the opioid crisis has reached his town yet, just yet. Uh, it seems like it's mostly just a a job he doesn't really want to do, but, you know, he's been there for a while, maybe he inherited it, maybe he didn't have any other job prospects, that kind of guy. This isn't this isn't some guy raised in sort of a, a you know, rough uh, area, and he's hard-boiled by it. Um, this is a guy who, who's just kind of, you know, he mostly deals with drunks trying to drive their truck through places, it sounds like. Just dealing with drunks. Uh, being violent at bars, drunks trying to drive through stuff. I, I get that sense. Maybe a few ODs every now and then, but probably not on the level that he will deal with in about five years if this incident didn't happen. Um, so uh, the year is 2010. Uh, he is going to a baseball game. Uh, shows you uh, sort of where his, his mindset's at. And he's just watching the sort of little league game and then a uh, apparently uh, drunk father wandering on the field with a shotgun. Uh, he walks up to him, tries to r- rationalize with this drunk father, but he won't. He, he's just talking what is he, nonsense. Can you, can you walk us through that? Hey, drunk father. I know you. You know me. You're a drunk father. Put the shotgun down. <laughs> now, we all know you're the drunk daddy around here. But what my gun presupposes. But but drunk daddy is uh, is not to be reasoned with. Um, he's acting very, very erratic, very strange. <clears throat> and uh, Timothy Oliphant has to shoot him down in front of a bunch of kids, families, all that. Uh, makes him feel like shit. Well, based on that stadium and the population, at least a third of the town. <laughs> Do you think 1200 is a little too small for... I mean, I, grew I don't like think people are town. driving in for away games. I actually like it. Like, 1200 is the right size where the sheriff knows most people. And, like, yeah. it just has that strip of street. With the the shops that make um make for effective scenes later, so I actually think it works pretty well. Yeah, I wasn't sure as a as a fellow Midwesterner, Aaron, who who grew up in smaller towns than I did. Uh, I wasn't sure what you thought of twelve hundred population because usually when you drive oh, past that, a town with twelve hundred population, you're like, it's a gas station. I mean, so actually, if anything, my sister and my brother in law live in a town of maybe twenty two hundred here in Minnesota. Um, and if anything, uh, they've made the town, like, 1200 would be, would be a bigger town than we see. Wow. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Uh, okay. While you do that, I'm gonna actually figure out the population of their town. I mean, their town has, like, you know, it's, it's kind of like a, 
Oh, I guess that that's that's three thousand. Okay. So, but even that town, like you know, it has like just picture like a suburb. Yeah. Of like Chicago, like one of the smaller suburbs of a big city, where it has like here's a couple department stores, here's a couple fast food place. You have a, your park, you have these two gas stations, and that's like the township. Imagine if you remove that from being a suburb. That's essentially what you have. And North Dakota and Minnesota is like scattered with those those types of towns. So, uh, but those are the towns where like I've stopped in to get a beer, where you just have like everyone knows their names at the bar. There's two bars, like they compete for customers. Um, they 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 know when you show up to the bar that you don't live there. So I actually think that works well for just how familiar everyone is with everything. Yeah, the main the I, what I recognize especially, um, even though I was from like suburban Chicago, I I, I had I did live in Illinois. Um, the what I recognize a lot is the uh, main street hub. Um, but the main street hub surrounded by kind of nothing. Um, sort of like there's a million towns along 55 South uh, that kind of stretches from Chicago all the way down uh, through the state into uh, Missouri. Um, there's there's uh, there's so many towns that look like this. Sometimes it looks like the towns are copied and pasted. Like it's like <clears throat> it, or they yep. use like a slight they use like a seed multiplier in a video game where they're like, all right, <laughs> this seed requires that there be a post office, seven antique shops and two bars. And we're just in a subway and we're just going to copy paste, copy paste all the way down. And I also love that, like, in a town that size, the kind of corrupt mayor, uh, he, you can tell he's wealthy because he just has a has a, a swimming pool that's not an above ground swimming pool. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll get we, we, we will get to that because uh, that guy is uh, resonated with me. Um, Lids, what kind of what kind of town did you grow up in? Well, that's what I was thinking about when you guys were talking about this is that I grew up in, you know, a suburb of Los Angeles and it adds to the effect of the movies, like the the concept that people know each other that intimately and personally and know, you know, everybody's kids and they go to these games. It's like we, we didn't we didn't get that really much where I grew up. It's like there's no way yeah. in a town of you know, city of 25,000 people that I ever hardly ever ran into anybody that I knew unless it was like a school function. And even then it was like a class of 400 and some students just in one class. Like my senior class is like 400 and some graduating people. So it's like, it's crazy. This is like, they know each other. They're like, it's like a commune, almost like their family there. Everything's personal and everything that happens to these yep. people is, is very um, personal to, to the characters. Yeah, and that's, I mean, like, I, I definitely grew up in a small town, which is Bismarck, North Dakota, for most of my life, but that town is still, like, 150,000 people, <laughs> like, mm -hmm. with with their little suburbs and stretches and stuff like that, which means there was, like, five high schools that graduated, like, my graduating class was, like, 452, so it was the, like, occasionally when you went to a Target or, like, the mall, you would see a couple people that you knew just because that was the mall that people went to. But, yeah, it wasn't a, like, I guarantee the sheriffs didn't know everyone by name. But I think that works really here where it's like, well, I know he's got a drinking problem. He's been sober two years, but clearly old you can tell drunk he daddy brings a shot. A half dozen times, yeah. right? And, yeah, and everything is lower stakes, right, too, because it's like, look, I know Daryl means no harm. 
Like, yeah. he's just bringing the shotgun out into the field. Yeah. <laughs> you know, probably because he forgot that he doesn't live on the baseball field. He's just having this a bad day, you know, he just, yeah. You know. This is not fucking, uh, this is not fucking Sylvester Stallone gunning this guy down be- and being like, serves him right. Like, this is, this is a <laughs> actual human character. The movie is very much about human characters. This one just happens to carry a gun and have a job at the town where he feels a sense of responsibility for people. So, um, yeah, so he shoots the guy. He feels pretty shitty about it. He gets visited by the family who says, like, he stopped drinking, like, a year ago or whatever like and he was really proud of it the entire time like also we were with him that morning you're telling people that he was drunk yeah Yeah, you're like telling everyone that you know you shot the town drunk like good for you they're fucking pissed at him um which we'll come back later what happens is some local some uh, local hunters stumble upon a parachuter a parachute an infantryman parachuter corpse um, I don't know exactly what designation he's supposed to be. Um, and he, uh, it, it, when they're sort of hunting in the marshes of Iowa, which we'll talk about later, whether or not this movie looks like the Midwest or if it looks like Georgia, they discover that they go and investigate it. And, and Timothy Olfont discovers that something goofy is happening with the, 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 um, creeks and streams that run into their water supply because a plane has crashed in their water supply there's a dead man in their water supply who looked like shit. And it seems like people might be going crazy. So the, the other way that it happens is a, uh, a local man um, kills his family by burning down their house with them in it. Which is actually the opening of the original Crazies is just a fireman, yeah. a volunteer fireman showing up to the scene and a guy is, I think, I don't know if he's dancing or he's mowing his lawn or something, but he's basically acting completely blasé about the fact that he just burned his family alive. I um, think it's the lawn mowing, which they reference here, because they're like, oh, when we showed up, he was mowing his lawn. Yeah, so it's so it's it's weirdly enough, like, referencing the original and sort of setting up more of a dramatic case for it, because also uh, the, the sheriff's wife... Um, is uh rada mitchell is um she's the town doctor um or one of the town doctors essentially and she saw this sick man doctor. the day b- that he yeah. decided to burn down and his family was like there's something fucking weird with this, this like this dad there's something weird with this dad um it's not it's, it's a bad dad um, <laughs> he's a bad dad <laughs> he's just a bad dad something weird with him banana well you pick up a banana and you're like oh it's got some brown spots but it looks good and then there's just like a fucking wet spot right at the bottom where all like the grossness settled like that yeah like um, when, you, when you pick up a dad and you're like Ooh. yeah when you pick up a dad you, you <laughs> those feet over. could use a washing there's a lot of gross spots <laughs> on the bottom what are these calluses this is gross you, you ever heard of a pet egg bad dad dad <laughs> but he's acting um like he's showing dementia sy- symptoms essentially and so uh that combined with the crashed plane timothy olfont finds out there's something essentially discovers there's something in, something in the water um he was the mayor mayor says uh he basically does a combination of the jaws thing but it resonates now a lot more with our president uh fat guy swimming by a pool he goes it's farm it's far, farming season you can't cut off these guys water you'll cut off their livelihood you know business must not be interrupted essentially but uh he uh but yeah the, the mayor doesn't do shit 
And so Timothy Oliphant does. He turns off the water supply, but it's too late. The town descends into madness. So Timothy Oliphant goes home. Yeah, and we're like 20 minutes in, like it's, which yeah. was very surprising. Like you expect a long, like convincing. And it's like, nope, never mind. We've abducted all of you. Yeah, Timothy Oliphant goes home and is abducted by, you know, black ops guys, essentially. Not black ops guys. They, they actually establish later. They're just infantrymen that were, you know, pulled into this task. Um, and these, these soldiers abduct him, abduct the town and sort them into camps. So, uh, there's the people that register with a high fever, uh, get sorted into one camp and it seems like it's for experimentation dash dissection. And then one camp, Timothy Olfon is in, is being loaded on a buses apparently, um, to be, you know, uh, taken out of town so that they don't get infected. Um, Timothy, the, well, the that's, gets I mean, wink, wink. That's wink, what you wink. think's happening with these people. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to use the word apparently a lot. Um, yeah. Uh, so the uh, Rada Mitchell gets uh, gets uh, taken because she is uh, exhibiting a high fever because she has a baby. Um, she's pregnant, um, I should say. Um, and uh, he, Timothy Oliphant, does not have a high fever, so he gets taken into the healthy people camp, and he, being a, a roguish, uh, you know, Raylan Givens type, if you will, uh, breaks away <clears throat> and goes and tries to find his wife with the help of his uh, deputy, Russ, and at the same time... At the same time, the crazies break into the high school-hospital that is being run on the patients, um, and the military essentially pulls the fuck out at the same time as a bunch of them get murdered, um, and abandons the town to chaos. Um, Rada Mitchell gets saved by Timothy Oliphant, and uh, the two of them go off on a quest with Russ, as well as um, the volunteer worker at the, at the uh, clinic. Um, is she is she a nurse or she's just like a volunteer? She's like a she's not a volunteer worker. I used that for firefighters earlier. She, well, she's not even in. Uh, she's not even out of high school, so I think she's just someone that went to the doctor. She's like a secretary, records keeper, helps at the front desk, whatever you want to call that yeah. sort of like you know, um, ad- administrative job. Um, she and so the four of them, uh, one a couple, one not, uh, venture off to try and um get get the hell out of town. Um, what ends up happening is the nurse gets picked off, or the nurse, the, uh, the secretary gets picked off, um, they run into some soldiers, they get very few answers, um, they, uh, they, um, they go to the uh, their actual house, the the sheriff and the doctor's house, and uh, waiting for them inside is uh, the two, the mother and the son of uh, the drunk man that he shot at the beginning of the movie, um, who in their crazy state um, have uh, decided to focus all of their aggression and their rage on him and try and murder him. He saves them, saves his wife, and uh, yeah, they they keep going. They find out Russ actually gets infected, um, and they uh, R- Russ, in a moment of sort of um, a moment of clarity, decides to focus his violent rage on the soldiers instead, uh, and gets murdered. Um, and they drive off into the sunset in a stolen truck uh, after a battle. And a nuke gets dropped on the town to sort of wipe it clean. They survive the nuke. They get away. 
And then the final shot is a satellite view of what's what's going on. So pretty long recap, but there's actually it's actually a somewhat delicate movie. It's actually a somewhat like uh, plot driven, very step by step, methodical movie. And I, I when I was watching little, it, it didn't feel episodic. that way because it's a very like it's a very uh, elegant movie in that way in terms of plot. One thing I, I don't want to uh, go past too quickly is just that um, when they do go to the town before the nuke drops, they find that all the all the people who were not infected, all the people from the town that were on buses, were uh, were all slaughtered in these yes. like and thrown everywhere before the nuke uh, happened. So uh, you're right, Peter. Like at first, you're like, well. Why did they? Why did they leave these infected people? If they're just going to abandon them to this like murder town and let them escape, but they're not. They did some tests, then they leave, then they kind of wall off the town, and then they take the other people away and then just kill them all in a different location. So yeah, okay, it's let's, uh, let's talk about the disease first um, and why it's different so, than a zombieism. Yeah. So the part I really like about it is that. Uh, so I, did did either of you guys watch the X Files? Yes, I did, but less than you. Um, there's a second season episode that's one of my favorite, like early Monster of the Week episodes. Very much like this, probably taken from George Romero's, where it turns out to be uh, the the X Files twist is that uh, the 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 technology in the town is driving people crazy. But I do that trope of like this this person is still like able to be like or like mom and dad. I don't know if you guys saw mom and dad like that. Um, Hey, yeah, I can have a conversation with you. I'm not a zombie. I'm not dead. But then there's something about the virus that drives them to do to compel them to be murderous in some way. And mom and dad, it's against, you know, their own children. There's that terrifying scene where, like, they let the school out early and all the parents are waiting there as the kids come out to kill them as as they come out. Um, and, like, there's the, you know, the that X-Files episode. I forget exactly what it's called where, like, you know. The guy just got done killing his family and he's out mowing the lawn. Um, just, hey, how's it going, Bob? Like, and he really just doesn't quite, like, get what he's done. But the, vi- the virus that's happening is causing it. Like, that is such a great, uh, horrifying trope that they use to good good effect in this and the other one. Because there, there is something about, like, okay, this is a zombie. This is a monster. This is something that I have to fight against. This person has changed. Um, it's scarier when they're just sitting there like repeating the same thing and then doing murderous shit. It like turns them all into their own kind of serial killer. So you have like the the redneck drunks who are just wandering in the street. Doing purge stuff. Doing purge stuff, looking for people to kill. You have the the family of drunk daddy who like, hey, we have a target. Like we're seeking revenge. And then you have a cop who just becomes like a shitty cop who no longer follows like reading people their rights. Like I'm a I'm a cop. I have a gun. I'm gonna kill the bad guys. Whoever I decide is a bad guy. They seem so, like, to follow just... their last violent <clears throat> impulse. Um, their last the last uh violent thought they had. Yeah, and in some ways, I mean that's that's scarier to me, like than a zombie. The the idea that um. That you can actually be fine in this way, but just have been driven to do to do the murder in the in another way. Um, but not even I think the scariest part of that, if I'm gonna drill down even deeper, is like it's the idea that they don't know that the thing that they've done is like terrible. That X Files episode just just speaks to me because I think I think maybe he kills his mom and then he invites someone into his house. It's been a long time, so I apologize if I'm getting the details 
a little bit off, but like then he sees like the dead mom or something and he's like, yeah, what? What's going on? Like the other guy gets horrified. You know, the other movie that does that, Peter, that we've covered or the the Master's yes. Horror is the, the Screwfly Solution. I was is- thinking of Screwfly Solution. Like this feels like a more successful execution of that, but sort it takes out the gender um, aspect, which makes Screwfly Solution so interesting. But it's always so good. Like uh, the mom and uh, you've seen Mom and Dad, right? The oh yeah, Mom from- and Dad. Mom and Dad rules. Mom and Dad is a is a yeah. movie that for some reason uh, has not become like an outright cult movie, but it will. Give it five years. Liddy, have you seen Mom and Dad? No, I haven't. Oh my gosh, check! But it's it's that's like the same thing, except it's specific about you have an over un- overwhelming, unstoppable urge to kill your own children. But it's like. Well, it's like you guys were talking. It's like way more scary than than you know when you see a zombie, you're like, okay, there's a zombie. I've got to fight it. Whereas you know you see these people starting to change, and they're but they're also people that you know. They're not just some random, yeah. you know, group of monsters that you're like, oh, okay, you know, I know what I'm up against. There's a gray like zone. You don't know when they're going to change, and then how are you going to handle it? And you know, and it becomes very personal. It's like you know when if in the zombie movies, like when you're your relative becomes a zombie you're the one who's gonna have to end end it you know and it's so it's this is very much more scary to not know how these people are going to react and what they're going to do and you know them and it's just like your town neighbor yeah because like in the zombie movies the thing that people have to get over is like you have to accept you just watched him die so he's dead you saw that he got back up or like is you know, or like his brains are hanging out, or his like skins off. Like, yeah, you know, you gotta accept that he's dead now. So move on. Here it's like, well, he's acting a little weird. Like, is he just having a bad, uh, bad day? Is he just a little stressed out, or or is he infected with the murder virus? It's harder to parse. You're a hundred percent right. Yeah, so it's a lot. It's a lot scarier, right? And, and it's like, yeah, and again, just yeah. the scary part for me is just like these are people who you know, and you're you're trying to like figure out who has this virus, and and it's it's really scary to watch them, you know, act on their their rage. That sort of gray zone makes it scarier. So there's a there's a theme in the Romero zombie movies that was carried on to The Walking Dead and was carried on to a lot of fiction, which is like moments where you can't tell the difference between the zombies and the living. Um, and at times the living are worse than the zombies and, and all of that. That That is the theme that um, was established in Night of the Living Dead for Romero. And then he carried it into Dawn of the Dead, but he also carried it before then into the crazies. And so this movie has like, uh, a lot of that Romero DNA in that um, it's it, the best moments are playing on that gray zone, right? Like there's some cool horror moments, like the guy roaming through the the hospital with a pitchfork, just yeah, systematically killing killing people that are strapped down and can't help themselves and and are either screaming for help or completely unaware. Like also the the crazies kill each other. That which the zombies don't eat each other. The crazies uh, will will interact with one another and sort of form like a different top level society. You can have what they affectionately call a murder off. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And so that like uh, it does it, it does create more complexity. And I like zombie movies, but it does create more complexity and it makes this movie more interesting. Uh, having these sort of small small town interactions interlaced with all of that and it does make it into more of a series of slashers than a zombie movie um 
so like there's the bone saw moment the surgical bone saw moment um the pitchfork is obviously super slashery um them getting stalked at the gas station is a great little sequence where yeah. the guy is just in the background of the diner and then she walks around the edge of the diner you know not even knowing he's there and then he's gone he's 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 off in the wind somewhere that that, that sort of playing with with um your expectations makes it uh be able to pull on both pandemic fears and, and it also lets you pull on slasher fears but also in the middle there's conspiracy theory uh horror and domestic horror so like there's like the pandemic action there's the psychopath you know uh guy breaking into your house action and then in the middle there's the domestic horror like when you're sitting in when you're sitting somewhere and you have a a um an, an intrusive thought um some people talk about you know you're standing on the edge of a bridge and you're like well what if i jumped off or some people talk about like well what if i murdered that guy i pushed that guy on the subway platform we never do it but we 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 get these weird intrusive thoughts that that sort of domestic horror that happens in our everyday life is in there and then the conspiracy theory horror that uh guys in gas masks and guys in black trucks can just show up at any minute um and just completely upend your life. So it's kind of playing off of four quadrants for me. And the way that it interlaces in, in between those quadrants. But keeps it sort of as a grounded, pretty realistic horror movie. Is what um, makes the movie work for me. Yeah, so, and and Lydia, this was your first time seeing it. So what was your, what was your take on it? Did you, did you, did that kind of line up with you or... You know, it's always it's always sometimes tough to go back to these things ten years after they were released too, and it was kind of poking through that like, oh no, this is one of the good ones of the current current horror trends because now the contemporary like the horror trends now are mostly like make good horror movies. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, it's to, it's yeah. it's it's kind of you know because you're just, it's an old, it's an older movie, so it's like, but it's it's refreshing for me because I haven't seen something like this because I haven't seen Romero's and and I've only only really been watching a lot of horror um horror horror yes horror uh zombie movies <laughs> and and it's so it's like it's refreshing you know that it's that it's that's that different in and and it's it's almost like well what's scarier is this or or you know having zombies come after you yeah, and one thing I really like that they very smartly updated that almost like works into why these movies uh, are are so different is that you know in in the in 1973 there's a there's a virus released. What else are they going to do but get up and close with the town and wear their protective gear and deal with it? And I like that this movie has limited interaction with them because they don't need to get so close. Like there is that as Peter, you know, as you alluded to Peter, like there is that like, yeah, we're watching this on the satellite. We got people tagged of where they're going. Like no one's going to escape and we're going to, we don't have to get close enough that we have to set up an office in the town to, uh, to decide what to do. We can go in, do exactly what we need to do. We know where the people are. Uh, And that's why I actually like, both both movies end on that kind of like, oh no, the virus is going to still spread. And I actually think the one area where this movie does a slightly better job than the original is in the uh, – to spoilers for the 1973 one. The virus spreading is a lot more just kind of like, oh no, the vaccine's not there and this person has it. And now that person you know, has is, is going off to spread it, which is like 
you know, a, a good twist, a great horror tag, a t- good Twilight Zone ending. This one's a lot more like, oh, we're watching on the these people that we think have made it out of a, a nuclear blast, getting killed by murder virus people, getting killed by the military. They're they're running in the woods to safety. But nope, there's the satellites watching them, and we just see the screen like, yep, initiate that containment protocol on this town now. And it's that, oh, there's no escape. I have to say, too, like, when you're living in the time that we're living in now, on a darker note here, because, you know, we want to have fun on this podcast, but we have to acknowledge the fact that the time that we're living in, if I would have seen this movie before this pandemic that we're going through right now was happening, I probably wouldn't feel the same way that I feel now. Because it's so, you know, especially at the end when it's like there's surveillance on these people and they're trying to get away and they have the, you know, they think they have the the town contained. And it's just like there's a lot of stuff going on in the news right now that, you know, has some some parallels to this. And it's just it makes it a lot more scarier right now. But also like just talking about vaccines and tracking people and tracking, you know, things. It's like this is a lot more, you know, relevant than it would have been if I watched this when it came out or even a few years ago. And and, and even just like people having fits of rage. It's like, okay, do they have the virus? Do they not? Or people just, you know, in, in any movie when, yeah. when things like chaos happens, it's like people just snap. So it's 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 too much um going on right now that so makes it a movie to watch or not watch during this time uh, yeah yeah, i mean we don't have we don't have people that like do you have the virus because you're a you're a murder person but we do have people going with guns to random state capitals like let us get the virus well not even that it's like in reference to like just like breaking somebody's arm in a store because you're going into a fit of rage or like i don't know if this is true and i know somebody broke somebody's arm in a store that i'm pretty sure is true but there was another thing that i saw online that a woman got upset because she couldn't buy a pool and she started throwing stuff around and she hit the retail worker in the face and her face was all bloodied and like she was like this is crazy the crazies everybody's turning into crazies yeah. and they don't they're not infected i don't think so so so, so while we're talking about yeah. that really quickly there's a scene in the uh, of uh, uh you know people watching from the second third or fourth story window of a high school down below <clears throat> as people that have been identified as having the virus are inside a camp uh, uh, a fenced-in area. Then some guys with trucks and assault rifles burst through the the window. We cut away. It burst through the 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 camp uh, fence. Then we cut away. Then people are charging over the fence. And also, we've proven at this point that just because you have a high temperature doesn't mean it's an adequate test, right? Yeah. Adam Mitchell's in there. The the um the administrative assistant at the the clinics in there she seems fine up and like she gets murdered. Although but although you yeah you do realize why it doesn't matter to them though they're like okay like they're not actually trying to separate the healthy from the from yes, the sick yes. they're like, just trying for, to they're making a, an arbitrary test um yeah. but and also you're making the assumption that the government would care enough about you to quarantine you or put you in cattle cars or whatever their solution is just to let the people that are drinking the crazy water just die out. Um, anyways, it's it's interesting you bring up the who are the crazies, who's actually infected, who's not, and sort of that tying that into the Romero theme. There's one sequence in this movie that I think is accidentally genius, and that's what I was just referring to, the militia guys breaking into the government camp and shooting. Because 
from a distance, you can't see their vein, veiny necks or any of the sort of uh, very subtle sort of uh, notices that makes people cr- that, that, that people have got the virus. It's just people breaking out of a camp in a moment of panic and people breaking into a camp maybe to save their family, maybe totally healthy people. In, in the special features, they say, oh, well, yeah, then there's that sequence where the crazies break out of the camp. And I was like, you guys didn't even realize what you did. Because the point is that that sequence can be read abstractly about whether or not these are crazy people, like, uh, you know, militia people going after. And I'm using the word crazy. We'll probably need to discuss at some point here with a big old uh, footnote. But, um, you know, quote unquote, crazy people breaking militia people breaking into the camp who are completely, uh, you know, uh, do not have the virus. Um, and then people who actually have the virus. Um, breaking down fences and like that sort of uh, that sort of ambiguity is makes that sequence so much scarier because you're just watching people react violently and suddenly to a moment and they might be feeling violently towards the soldiers so why wouldn't they throw the fence over like and that's a moment where you're like you can't trust anybody anybody could have it or those people could just be fucking pissed and trying to take down the the military camp um that is like the some of the best stuff in the movie it reminds me of a part of the movie that it's like the the deputy his name is russ i think like Mm -hmm. he says he has the virus so you know he go ahead and sacrifices himself um, so that he can, I, I assume, make a distraction for them to get away. But it's like, I mm-hmm. wasn't fully convinced that he was even infected. I know he was, was doing he, some yeah, crazy stuff, but he, st- he, just, yeah. he still had, he still was like, can I walk with you guys? And like, can I still like be with you guys? And, you know, they didn't trust him anymore, but it seems like he was just like getting desperate. I'm like, I don't know. Was he desperate or did he have the virus? I don't, there was no definitive answer that I saw. Or, you know, yeah, because he didn't have any. I mean, he didn't have any veins popping. He didn't have all the physical signs, and in, and theoretically, he should have. You know, their their whole thing about like, uh, hey, in forty eight hours, you should have it or don't have it. Everyone else that we see all got exposed by the water. So th- I mean, he should be just as bad as um, like the 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 family of drunk daddy, who like <laughs> you know is still like has a singular goal and can communicate, but. They're showing the physical signs. You're right. Like Deputy Russ never shows any of the physical signs. He just is like just having a true like an understandable in some ways like mental breakdown, mental breakdown. Yeah. Like but, that's but, what's happening. But also and also he gets especially pissed because he's like, I'm I'm fucking angry at what I've gone through. And he so he kills the guy. And then when Timothy Oliphant takes his gun because he's worried about him, that's where he's like, oh, fuck you, too. But it's not like the virus. Like, the, you know, he doesn't kill him. He just is like, I'm done. I'm done with you. I'm done with what I've had to deal with. Like, he's just reached a point that I think, uh, you know, he's reached the Lord of the Flies moment. Like, there's no society all the uh, the safety nets are gone, and he is he's had to deal with just a, an, a remarkable amount a remarkable amount of traumatic experiences in a short period of time, and he's you know that's that is how he's reacting. But I agree, I I don't think that he has the virus. Yeah, and it, and it's interesting also because he he may have it, he may not have it. So the last you, you, people are tracking their last impulse. People aren't just it, it's not like the the zombies in the Snyder Dawn of the Dead. Which let me just put a little nugget here because I don't think we'll get to it. Um, 
<clears throat> it's kind of funny that this movie begins with Johnny Cash covering We'll Meet Again. Because obviously six years earlier, Dawn of the Dead had uh, When the Man Comes Around. Um, and We'll Meet Look, Again. Look, the trailer is- for this movie uses, uh, <laughs> I, I messaged Pete about this, it uses the Gary Jules cover of Mad World. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, this a movie's musical cues. Yeah, a little late to the party on a couple. Like, oh, well, we know what to do here. I mean, I love that, were. though. I love when there's, like, some meaning to a song. If you know the song, that, that there's a meaning there. And I love when, when that's used by, you know, the filmmaker as, like, it, it, there's a meaning there to that. And it, it's given to you yeah. at the beginning of the movie. And it's, like, it's one of those other little genius touches that I like. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, it's a little... It's a little well, in the trailer, like as I've edge. said, the trailer does rule. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's not cutting edge. Aaron and I talked about this. It's not exactly cutting edge, but it's, it's you know, it makes a it's good a touch. Trailer. It's like a nice touch. Yeah. Yeah. It, music is music is another important element for me, like what, the way you use music or a score or whatever. So that adds to the whole ambiance of the movie. Yeah, it does. So the, the, the We'll Meet Again is a, is a specifically, um, Stanley Kubrick used it in Dr. Strangelove in an ironic way, which is interesting because both films end with a nuclear blast. Um, but we'll meet again. One, one with more than the other. Yes. Um, <laughs> single versus countless. Um, so, All uh, we'll meet again was a song written, uh, for, uh, soldiers going off to war during World War II. And it was supposed to be sort of this wistful, like, um, you know, come, come back home and we'll get married and have babies come back home and, you know, we can go back to our normal life again, come back home and, you know, maybe we'll see what, what. What, what what this whole relationship was like or come back home and to your friends who you know aren't going to the war because maybe they're too young or they already served or whatever um that we'll meet again was supposed to be this sort of wistful maybe a little bit hopeful um sad sad kind of song about that and this is a movie specifically about a town coming apart um and at the end of it the town itself is obliterated into dust um, so it's, it's a weirdly smart music choice to start the movie with, even though it, it's obviously like supposed to be an ominous thing. It, the movie's subtle hand in the way that they play this, they don't play it like they did in Dawn of the Dead 2004. They just play it like it's sort of like a country-ish song, you know, it's the Midwest. A lot of Midwest Westerners are associated with the South, South, the country, country song sort of setting a vibe but when you realize it's will meet again it has like a specific import um but yeah so this is a much more this is actually a much slower more subtle more realistic more in the moment movie than the Zack snyder's dawn of the dead but it does have some influence from it but um yeah as long as we're talking about little moments one thing i don't want to forget is that there's the part where so we've had the the shotgun daddy (laughs) I think the more names we can come up with him, the better, to be honest. <laughs> so we've had Shotgun Daddy already happen. Uh, and then the next thing is the uh, the Burning Daddy, we'll say, who burns down his house. But his his wife and his son are suspicious something's going on because he's turned the combine on at two in the morning or something and just has the combine running. The Thrasher, too, but not – it's still just parked in the uh, garage, which is not connected to the house because Combine is much bigger than your typical sedan. So she walks out, Combine's running, and her – I would say her choice to address the fact that her husband may be up at 2 in the morning running the, the Thrasher on the Combine, I feel like her second instinct is really good, which is to go to the side of the Combine – into the cab 
to yell at her husband for this. I feel like her first instinct, which is to stand in the middle of the combine <laughs> uh, while it's running inches away from the rotating blades, is a bad choice. Now, I get yeah. it. You just got woken up by a combine. But uh, I love the fact that, that she doesn't like, get what, are, what are you doing in the combine? Yeah, like, like he can't hear you, and you don't. You, know, you just have bright lights flashing, and I'm like, um, hopefully he sees you and doesn't accidentally hit the gas. Because and that you thing's are right huge, and it's you know scary. That's scary. I wouldn't want to be anywhere near that. It, it is a very good scene, but I like, I like the idea of like, fuck, fucking Earl. Like, <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna go right. I'm gonna go like, like I'm playing chicken with you and the Thrasher to tell you to shut the fuck up at two in the morning. But, uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I just think that scene is very, very funny that that was the. And then she does do the sensible thing, which is like, oh wait, he can't hear me. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go on the side where he sits and and talk to him. Also away from once again the the spinning death blades yeah like they 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 hint uh that it, they hint at a dumber movie a more a less subtle movie there um but instead she gets the cabin and he's not there um, not there and then walks in the house and he burns down the house which i think that actually um i'm not trying to get to final thoughts too quickly but i well, we, we keep talking about all these choices that it made that it could have made dumber choices and ultimately make successful choices, but um, it doesn't break a lot of new ground. And I do kind of feel like that's the movie as a whole. It is a it, – it's not the type of movie that I think if someone went um, to you and said, hey, give me some of the best horror movies you've seen in the last 10 years, it's not going to be probably on your top 50 of that list. But it is that movie that like, oh, this comes across on cable – or, hey, what are some good horror remake type lists that you'd bring up? Because it's it's good at a lot of things and is great at a couple things, but just ultimately doesn't have enough memorable things, I think, to kind of continue to stay in the conversation as a as some as a recommendation level horror movie i'd say if you're like tired of zombie movies and you want something different then this would be like fall in the i want to really watch a movie about like viruses or or zombies that this would be something that you would like take a take a breather from the zombie movies from yeah like stop watching outbreak outbreak sucks <laughs> go, go watch the crazies uh netflix viewers well i mean for me i was like i was on a little bit of a kick of let me yeah i watched outbreak and contagion and, and everything because i was just at the beginning of this i was like oh i feel like i'm on a kick of of these yeah. movies so it's kind of like a nice little if you're into you know themes that you know it's definitely one that you would want to throw in there uh yeah, what do you think of Outbreak? I I I candidly I haven't seen it since like 1995, but I upon remember. rewatching it, I, I I you know again it's just it, it spoke to me differently this time. I guess that's true. Yeah, I mean, I I I was tempted to watch Contagion again, and I couldn't do it because that movie scared the shit out of me in 2011, um, and I wasn't quite mentally there to do it, but. Um, Outbreak, I remember, like, because I read the this is so dumb, but I read the book The Hot Zone because my dad had it when I was like twelve, and I'm like, oh, cool book. viruses, and I was so disappointed with the movie. So I don't know. Yeah, Hot Zone is a is a is a great book. Um, I don't know if it still holds up to you know whatever a, a virologist, uh, epidemiologist uh, uh, stand now, but I remember that book completely changed how I thought about these diseases and how like. Sometimes subtle steps are more important than big dramatic ones. 
I feel like Contagion like made like Outbreak was was what they were trying to go for, and then Contagion came along and did it better. But you know, back in that time, I it, it was it was okay, but now I, I can appreciate it more. Plus, a lot of N95 masks, which unfortunately you don't see a lot of anymore. Because yep. there's a shortage. I haven't seen <laughs> not a one. <laughs> not one. Not a one. Can I jump back real quickly to something? I something from earlier. The yeah. So Russell's uh kind of uh you know possibly infected, maybe not infected, as like one of my favorite plot lines in the movie. Um, and the idea that uh, maybe your last violent thought is something you're pursuing is very interesting to me because I buy the idea that like these hunters are going off on a hunt. They they go, they shoot, they shoot their game. They throw their game in the back of the truck like they would with a deer and then they keep moving and they're excited as shit about deer season and they're talking about people like their deer. Like it's like it's like they're pursuing their last violent thought. And for Russell, his last violent thought before he got fully infected was I need to protect the sheriff. I need to protect the sheriff's wife. I need to protect this girl um, from anybody. Um, you know, this, this my role as uh, the deputy uh, no longer is to keep the whole town safe. My role is to keep my sheriff safe. Um, and then he go, and then that's why they get a sort of um, strange version of a crazy who's on their side in my mind. Um, and it makes the the the, the sort of um, it makes the the metaphors in the movie more complicated and more interesting. But ultimately, I feel like this is a movie that, while very uh, while very successful as a sort of low-key, realistic, believable movie, but there's only really one crazy sequence, which is the bedroom sequence, um, where Timothy Olyphant, you know, fucking picks, picks a knife hand that's been stuck to the floor out and stabs a woman in the neck, and then a guy shoots... Uh, the other guy through the window like that's the only thing in the movie that i feel like is like a big dramatic sequence and they save it for the nigh climax um mostly it's like a slower more deliberate more thriller like experience and i love it for that because it let me sort of ease into what this town is like what the people are like and uh before i get into my final thoughts i just have a question so the crazies are pursuing if if the crazies are pursuing their last violent thought um, are the car wash workers pulling off the revolution? <laughs> like, I'm not washing another fucking car. <laughs> These bougie motherfuckers are dying. <laughs> yeah. They're, 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 I'd say, I'd say. They literally hang one of them. So, I mean, to me, I was immediately like, oh, yeah, these these working class guys are finally taking revenge on all the, the bougie assholes who tip bad. They're just yeah, throwing stuff think- around, jumping around, smashing the car up. I actually, that's my favorite scene, I think. That's the my favorite scene of the movie. Yeah, that that hits the domestic horror really hard. I do think, I know you said bougie as in, bouge, uh, you know, bourgeoisie or whatever. Bourgeoisie. <laughs> whatever, <laughs> bourgeoisie. Whatever, that's why I knew I said it wrong. That's why and you shortened it to correct bougie. Him. You just keep it as bougie Bo- and there's no mistakes. But I wanted to talk about something that kind of sounds like that, which is boots on cars. <laughs> Great transition, Aaron. Good work. I do kind of like that, like, the military had two options, put boots on cars or explode them. And you can kind of see, like, when they started, as they probably start at the end of the street, which has more boots than later on the end of the street, where all the cars are just turned over and on fire. I love the idea that, like, all right, put this boot on the car, locked it. Okay, put this boot on the car. You know what? Let's just fucking blow them up. Like, you <laughs> see that progression as they get closer to the hospital, which is a little touch that is very funny to me. Because as you're watching it, you're like, God, 
they're trying to do this stuff quick. They're doing all this murder, evil, like, get rid of the evidence. And then they're painstakingly putting boots on all the cars. Um, that just seems like a lot of work. But then as you realize, like, oh, that's why all the ones closest to the hospital are turned over and on fire. Because that's ultimately probably quicker. Like, let's just throw some gasoline and a lighter on it. <laughs> why are we doing this? And I like the idea that similar to everything, this actually leads me to my final thoughts here. Um this is very much feels like a war on terror movie to me, a post 9-11 movie in ways good and bad. Um, that the, the fairness, the all movies released after September 11th, 9-11 are post 9-11 movies. You can't deny that, Peter. Would you dare? I, 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 yeah, I mean, you, me and Dupree was also technically a post 9-11 movie, but I probably wouldn't bring it up on the episode. <laughs> Uh, I think we Drew should also Taylor, though, this is- I would bring that up because clearly Joe Taylor is about the American fascination with power violence after 9-11. But you, me and Dupree. OK, Marley and me. I wouldn't bring the- I wouldn't bring up 9-11 at all in those episodes. OK, no one talks about how Monster Trucks is a post Pearl Harbor movie. No one <laughs> saying you should. But no one talks. Uh, about it. Yeah, most most movies um, do not talk about. Uh, most movies are uh, post Lindbergh baby abduction, um, but you know, almost it, it, all movies the, were the somehow impacted. Like you don't know how much they were impacted by it, but you can't deny that they could have. You been, can't deny it just based on how time works. You can't deny it. Um, but yeah, so the, the 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 reason I bring up that it's a post nine eleven movie, it's a war on terror movie, is a few reasons, and and, and the impact is good and bad. One. Um, Trixie would totally be some shit that they would work up for the war on terror. Do you remember the gay bomb? So to, so to speak, it was supposed to be like, a a, 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 oh, yeah. a nerve agent that would make, uh, enemy combatants so irrevocably aroused that they would have to make love to one another. Like straight. And then like, obviously this movie came from Vietnam roots, uh, with the original movie where they were dropping insane shit on the Vietnamese and Cambodian populations to see what would happen. But, um, specifically, I mean, that's what the whole movie Jacob's letter is about, but specifically Trixie feels like a definitely would be a war on terror weapon. But anyways, uh, the reason I bring it up is because of a, uh, one comparison with the original in that the original, they really fucking gun down the Vietnamese soldier. Uh, uh, the American soldiers that are coming in to to uh, take over the town. It's straight up bloody conflict with them. Even the good guys are take are taking them down. Whereas in this, Timothy Oliphant doesn't want to kill troops. He doesn't want to. This that that impact where like what the Vietnam era spoke to the original movie. This movie speaks to. Um, what our era is like. And I think that's kind of a negative impact to the movie. Not that a million dead soldiers don't happen, but that the uh, Timothy Oliphant is so scared to take down troops. And in, in the, uh, so, so to speak, the writers and the uh, directors are so scared uh, to take down uh, these troops uh, because uh, they think that uh, shooting American troops at a time like, you know, 2010 was, uh, would have been uh, challenging or uncouth, for people to to swallow a pill that people couldn't swallow. So Timothy Oliphant has this whole scene with this guy named Babcock that's very interesting. Um, it's an extremely post Iraq War, also extremely post um, Fahrenheit 9/11 uh, scene. The sort of idea that these troops were many of them regret going to the Iraq War, and many troops come came back. Not all of them, but many troops came back and and did not uh, were not supportive of the war. Uh, 
really led the American public to have a deeper sympathy with the American troops than we had in the Vietnam era, uh, despite the fact that the draft happened in the Vietnam era. Um, and it's sort of a difference of sensibilities uh, where even people that opposed the war were actually super supportive of soldiers coming home. Um, but it does make for a somewhat softer film where um, it's never on the table whether or not they want to kill U.S. troops or they want to engage in a battle with the troops. That's just never on the table. Whereas in the original movie, like it becomes a weird morally conflicting theme for the guys that they're like, we're shooting these troops, but also like these troops are doing their job, but also like, I don't want to die to just keep this a secret. It's a whole, it's a whole thing. And that, that I think that theme is where the movie's strengths come from and where its weaknesses come from. It chooses more subtle scenes like this Babcock interrogation scene, um, which are great, but also there are moments in the movie where it treats the idea of the idea of, um, actually violently defending yourself against your government as sort of a um as a as a, an idea only crazy people would pursue the fact that they're just engaging with the crazies in this movie instead of the u.s government like in the original movie and there's not that sort of moral conflict um for very long is i think ultimately kind of weakens the movie and it keeps it from being like a five out of five really interesting movie about how horrific it is for um this war on terror to exist in a time where we can just drop hundreds of thousands of troops on a country um including our own um i think that sort of keeps the movie from having a sort of transcendental proper transcendental transcendent quality um, and keeps it as just a really awesome thriller that nails all of it. Yeah. Uh, Lydia, what do you have to wrap us up? I'm uh, sorry, that was a yeah, like I, you didn't just say a lot of very insightful, interesting things, <laughs> Peter. <laughs> that was that was an agreement. Yeah, like, yeah, perfectly said. So smart. Uh, so glad you're my co-host on the podcast. <laughs> I'm sorry that sounded dismissive because I didn't mean no, it. I, I, I appreciate um, it. I also want to know what you guys think, because I talked a lot on this episode. So, uh, Lydia, what, what did you what did you take out of this movie? What, what what was your overall sort of feel for it? Well, I'm glad that I watched it. I think I'm glad that I watched it now in this time than maybe a few years ago, even though I might have revisited it um, at some point, um, because it just... it upon watching it for the first time, it really gets to me more than it would have. So it, 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 I'm going to hold on to that quality of just yeah. what the people are going through and um, the discussions with the military, the one military person that they come, well, they talk to two, but, you know, not for very long. So, you know, just the in talking to the people and, and, and the feeling of fear that you have of like, well, what's going on? Are they going to kill me? Are they going to help us? And, and, you know, the guy that they end up shooting in the head is like, oh, I'm here to help you. And you never get to find out whether, you know, what their intentions are. You pretty much figured out, you know, that they're not good, but you don't find out until a little bit later. So it's like, there's always this fear of like, well, what, what are they going to help these people? What are they going to do to these people? And, and it's a real, it's, it's actually a real, like a fear of, of the government. And, and so it, it speaks to me differently than other movies that I've seen and like a new way of, of, of looking at horror and what you can do with it. So I, I, I went into this movie thinking that I wouldn't like it too much, but you know, now that I've, th- I've thought it over and talked with you guys, it's like, there's a lot to, to take in that's different from other movies that I've seen. So I would definitely say it's on the list of movies to watch. Um, if you can handle it right now. <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, I, I think that's true. Like, 
you know, when we picked this, uh, so we, we, Peter and I are, get really excited about our own show, which I know is, is dumb. So we start like planning things really far in advance because we're always like, oh, and what do we want to talk about next? So like we picked this month, I want to say like November, <laughs> December of last, like it was a long time ago that we, we, we planned this and we're recording it in May. It doesn't even come out until, uh, the, the end of July, you know, it was just more of a, oh, this was a very interesting remake, and that's kind of what we want, want to talk about. We want to talk about remakes that uh, are generally pretty good, even if they're coming off of classic or, you know, somewhat classic. But, yeah, how do you do a horror remake, and what's successful and what's not? And that was kind of our goal for this month. And then as we started making the list, they there, there got to be so many on the list that we wanted to talk about. There's a whole, like, three more months we could probably do but yeah, it is it is a weird movie about how resonant or at least recognizable some of this stuff is. And I if we were crazy right wingers, I'm sure it'd be like, see this this is what the government's gonna do. No, <laughs> they'd be soon. like, they told us this, they prophesized this. This was already, you know, gonna you know, they were yeah. trying to tell us something. Yeah, exactly. They're gonna you come out of your house with COVID and they <laughs> put the temperature gun on your face, either way you're dead. That's what the government wants. Pizza gate. Um, <laughs> Pizza but, uh, <laughs> it's, it's still Pizza Gate, even if it's uh, no, it's crazy. O- it's Obama Gate. Oh, sorry, it's it's uh, it's C Annan for the crazies. <laughs> C for the crazies. Uh, but yeah, so it is. It is a weird movie that if their episodes stay out for a long time. So if you're listening to this in 2022, um, it may be it may be something where you you don't want to go back and revisit it. Uh, too much, or maybe it'll have a whole different meaning. Having lived, hopefully, this is our journal, people. This. this is our contribution. Yeah, exactly. Like this is kind of that. Like this is recognizable in the moment, and I liked it before it was recognizable. But you're a hundred percent right, Lydia. It does take on this kind of like new. I don't want to say new meaning, but new new way of uh, interpreting certain parts of it. And uh, at the end of the day, though, what makes it successful is it takes the right lessons from good horror remakes. Peter, you mentioned it has some has some stuff it kind of or concepts or ideas or musical choices or musical artists that it pulled a little bit from Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead. But whether you like or hate um, Dawn of the Dead, I do think that's going to be a little bit of our bellwether as we go through the rest of this, this double month because that is, I think, the way to approach remakes. And the movies that took those lessons from it uh, in some cases ended up being better movies or worse movies, but this is one that I think was like, yeah, we get it. Concept. Take the concept and then talk about what we want to talk about. It ends up being very successful at that. But I will say I do appreciate any movie where the ending is a is the government nuking a city. Maybe it's just my love of Return of the Living Dead, but I love that idea of like, well, I don't know. How about we throw a nuke on it and just be like, whoopsie daisies, because we've let this chaos do. Well, we tried. We put in a solid six hours of work and uh, didn't work out. So, uh, that's my my favorite part of Return of the Living Dead is like once they finally get through to them, it was just to blow up the city. Help is on the way. Yeah, I don't know. Nuke it. There's zombies loose. We're not dealing with that shit again. So, Lydia, thank you so much for coming on our show again i i hope hope you'll 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 come on soon for a third time yeah third was, time's the charm a- with aaron and peter i can't wait <laughs> Heck yeah. uh the first and the second time were charms as well lydia do you have anything to promote for our listeners 
Um, I I'm working on an ebook. Um, hopefully it will get done. And it's been a little challenging at this time. I'm narrating it, so awesome. I'm I'm excited to promote that when I'm finished. I, I can tell you what it's a cry. It's a true crime book. It's a true crime book. So oh, that's awesome. That's well, if so it does cool. come out before July. We can add it to the show notes and you can see it there. If not, I'm sure on your third appearance, it'll be out and we can we can promote it there. But uh, that sounds awesome. Perfect. Thank you so much. I'm so excited. Yeah. So, Peter, we, we're now moved beyond our opening trilogy in Screamakes with the, with the Romero. We still have five left. And I think our plan here was to go to – we've been talking a lot about – with Dawn of the Dead especially. Uh, and now the crazies, that kind of 2000 to 2010 horror era – and so we're going to continue that with another remake about – we've talked about the torture porn. We've talked about the uh, 80s and 70s remakes. And now we have to talk about the other huge trend, partially inspired by the movie we're going to talk about next week, partially inspired by another movie that was referenced on this podcast, uh, The Sixth Sense. And that is the 2002 remake of The Ring. Uh, and that's, ju- that's, that's just a Peter and Aaron uh, episode. But uh, I'm going to try to finally watch Peter Ringu because I do feel like uh, I should because we've been talking about how successful things are and and using some different metrics, including um, how faithful they are to the original. And I honestly have no fucking idea uh, how faithful the ring is (laughs) because I've only seen it once. And we'll we'll get into it next week. We'll get into it. But I I, I did not. Yeah, I did not give The Ring a fair fair assessment when I saw it in 2002, 2003. Um, I'm excited to go back to it because uh, I know it's very well regarded. And um, I really uh, – maybe I'll try to get the original in too. So I'm excited to kind of continue this. And then as we go on the month, it's more just – I think there's less of a thematic trend. But we're checking in on some remakes like Nosferat, uh, Herzog's Nosferatu, uh, Piranha. Uh, oh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers and uh, uh, the, the blob. blob. The Blob. So the blob. those uh, those are uh, remakes that are well before. Piranha doesn't really fall. I guess Piranha kind of follows the crazy trend in that it was uh, a horror remake of, uh, they were, again, both 2010. So I guess my whole, like, they're really reaching into the bottom of the bag. Like, I don't know. We remake the crazies in Piranha now. Shrug. Uh, but um, a movie yeah, that was originally made kind of on a lark. For, for Piranha. Yeah. Yeah, we'll get into Have you seen the original Piranha, Peter? I have not, which I will be watching before we do this. Awesome. It's good fun. I think fun. it's on Amazon Prime right now. It's good it's great, fun, but yeah. horrible graphics. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, the remake, too, is... Uh, I did. I watched the remake uh, recently, like two years ago. Uh, and, yeah, it it is... Uh, it's, I really enjoy the movie. But, it, but you're 100% right, Lydia. It is like... Hope you enjoyed 2002 era PS2 <laughs> <laughs> graphics for the fish because that's what you're gonna get. Uh, I'm really excited about the rest of this month. This is a this has been so fun so far, and uh, uh, yeah, the ring episode will be eight hours long. <laughs> so we'll see you next week uh, when we watch a video that uh, may kill us if any of us owned VCRs anymore. Good night. Good night.
Thank you so much for listening to We Love to Watch. If you made it to the end, hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, it wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, <laughs> if you can't, <laughs> uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand. And you want to support the show. Show, we truly absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it and it's because it really does help. And so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically, they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years. Uh, we really do appreciate you uh, with kisses and smooches. Peter and Aaron. <laughs> Mm. Mm. <laughs> <laughs>